Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 271st episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Katie North. Katie is the founder of North Financial Advisors, a boutique fee-only financial planning firm focused on serving women business owners that's based in San Diego and Washington, D.C., and oversees more than $24 million of assets across just 30 client households. What's unique about Katie, though, is how she right-sized her practice from what was a much larger number of clients. And she now purposefully maintains a very limited number of households that she serves to create a business that has both a strong earning potential while remaining personally sustainable for herself without risk of burnout. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Katie has built her firm to help younger clientele of women entrepreneurs discover the best uses for their capital and ways to balance their own money goals. Why Katie veers away from the traditional corporate full-time philosophy to ensure that she has time and capacity to meet the needs of her clients as well as herself and how Katie has systematized and automated processes to avoid the pressure of always staying connected as a solo advisor. We also talk about how Katie's experience with burnout in her former career inspired her to take a six-month sabbatical to step back and examine what was truly important in her own life. Why Katie believes that being resilient means first recognizing for oneself what is good enough, and how Katie realized that after just a few years of building her firm that increasing the quality of clients she was serving was becoming more important than just increasing the quantity. And be certain to listen to the end, where Katie shares how reflecting on the highs and lows of professional experiences with a support group of peers helped her to learn and grow in her own career. The rotating paraplanner program that Katie has built out to share her knowledge and mentor others to help them find their own paths of success. And how Katie came to let go of the urge to live a life of to-do lists and focus on feeling fulfilled mentally and financially instead. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Katie North. Welcome, Katie North, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate you joining us today. And and, and I'm looking forward to the discussion of talking about just how we build advisory firms in, in the in the image and the vision of what, what works for us. You know, there's a lot of labels out there around advisory firms, right? Like, solo practices and ensembles and 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 silos and and all sorts of labels that we give sometimes cuz the industry likes to put certain models or types on a pedestal other times just like we're just trying to understand the the nature of the business and what it and what it looks like and and some terms are are I think helpful and descriptive in that end and so I know you live a a model of kind of building your great group of clients that works for you, gets you to the income and business goals that that you want. You know, some people call those lifestyle firms, other solo practices or solopreneurs. But you know, just I'm looking forward to a discussion of kind of how you've come to that for yourself, you know, how you designed the practice, how you decided, like how many clients is the right number of clients and 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 what and deciding what you're going to build and just talking about that journey of what you built over the past several years to to build I guess what what I would characterize a a very successful solopreneur business. I look forward to chatting about it. So, I think to kick us off, would love if you could just describe for us the advisory firm as it exists today. So just help help paint a picture for us of North Financial Advisors. Sure. So, 
I have clients from Maine to Alaska, so I work nationally. I do have an office in the Washington, D.C. area, and I have an office in San Diego, where I'm primarily based. And um, my goal is to work with women who are breadwinners of their family to make sure that they're living their best life. And a lot of times what that means is they're making a big change in their current career structure because they've gotten burned out from what they do now. They've, they've done what they want to do and they have these other big goals in their mind that they're trying to do, but they're needing some help to get over the finish line there. So a lot of times I help my women owner, business owner clients start a business or grow a business. Other times it's about taking a sabbatical first before we do anything and taking a real step back and examining the things that are important in life so that when you take that step back, you can survey the land and figure out what the next steps are. So career changes, businesses, sabbaticals, that's all my wheelhouse. And so how many clients do you serve? I don't know if you measure like a number of clients or assets under management or, or, or revenue, like help us understand the, the, the scope of the clients. Yeah. So I'm starting off this year with 30 client households. Initially, when I had started my business, it was mostly advice only, like retainer revenue. But since I've gone through my evolution of my firm, I would say it's probably 75% assets under management and the other 25% is, you know, financial planning fees. Okay. And what's a, what's a typical client for you? A typical client is a woman in her 30s who has kind of hit that quarter life crisis, if you will, <laughs> that they make a good living, right? They, they aren't, they don't have trouble saving. They're, they're already there, they're saving, but they're trying to figure out what their next steps are. So most of the time my clients are saving one, two, $3,000 a month of their income. They're trying to figure out the best way to put that forward. And then we're coming up with investment plans to figure out how to make that work within the things they want to do, both in the short term and the long term. And a lot of my work is being that sounding board, being that member of my client's board of advisors, if you will, to help them discover, you know, what is the best use for their capital, the money that they have coming in and money going out. And how can we make sure that we balance those short-term goals with the long-term goals? And so if the business is heavily AUM from a fee structures, I mean, you, like you're, you're operating on assets or management basis, like what's the, what's the asset base then for, for 30 client households? Yeah. So I don't have any minimums. That's one really unique aspect about working with me is I, I kind of refused to do asset minimums. And so I can do a hybrid approach where, you know, a client basically will start off paying me a financial planning fee. And typically the minimum is around $6,000 per year. And then as we're go entering into this sort of gathering phase of figuring out how much they're going to be saving and where they need to be putting their money and that sort of a thing, I'll start opening accounts for them and then I will you know, manage those accounts. So I can grow with the client, if you will, as their total net worth grows and as you know, they, they evaluate their plans. Interesting. So no, no assets under management minimum, right? We, you're doing a combination, I guess, of planning and investment management offering. So, hey, if a $6,000 a year minimum fee works for you, like here's all the things that we do. And, and I think we'll, we'll get more into that in a few minutes of what those things are. But you know, we have a $6,000 minimum fee. If and when and as you, you save assets and, and grow a portfolio, we'll help you manage that as well. I guess just 
at some point when their assets under management fee exceeds their financial planning fee, now they're on an assets under management basis and that's the transition. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And so what's the what's the AUM fee fee schedule then? Are you at a like called the, the traditional one percent of AUM or yeah, I do traditional one percent. And the reason for that is just because it's easy to understand <laughs> for clients and you don't have to spend a bunch of time explaining it, you know, and that's just the easiest, easiest way. So I don't do a break point or anything like that. Okay. And and so effectively just once they get over six hundred thousand dollars of assets under management, then they're at a then they're at a six thousand dollar AUM fee. And at that point they're on an AUM schedule instead of a, a minimum fee schedule. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Except for existing business owners, because I have it, it is it's a lot more work. So I do continue to charge consulting fees for business consulting. And what do those fees look like? Like how do you, how do you set those those fees? Well, for those, um, it it kind of is a little bit of a sliding scale based on total net worth, but for that, the minimum is 10,000. Okay. And what's the overall assets and management base for the business at this point? I've got 24, more than 24 million, something like that. And then, you know, probably bring in another 60K or so in just pure, you know, financial planning fees. Okay. I'm just wondering, like, I'm I'm thinking about that from the, just the pure math end of 24 million of, of assets under management across 30 client households, so kind of average household of about $800,000, which for, you know, for a typical client in their 30s, like that's a, it's a good amount of dollars to have saved for, for someone by the time they're in their, their 30s. So it sounds like you're just, you're getting some folks who do have those kind of fast income, fast saving starts. But then as, as you noted, like maybe came at that a little bit too fast, are hitting burnout, are hitting quarter life crisis, are hitting moments that saying like, okay, it's going well and I'm making, making a lot of money, but I'm not actually enjoying where life is. So I've got some savings, I've got some success. It's time to do something different. I need to figure out how to do it. And I just heard about Katie North. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like that where, you know, they've they've done well for themselves. They don't necessarily have a liquidity event, but they probably are sitting on a lot of cash right now. So there's immediate investing that we do. And then there is a lot of saving that they're doing on a month to month basis. So like very often, like I'll go from managing zero dollars for a client and then managing 200 or 300,000 of of assets for a client within the first year, just as we develop their plan. Because just the tends to be folks who have a lot of a lot of income moving around and a lot of savings that that's happening on an ongoing basis. Yeah. And for the most part, none of my clients have ever worked with a financial advisor before. And so this is the first time they're actually sitting down and thinking, oh, like I can actually stack my money. I can actually figure out a way to make this work for me instead of just letting it sit in a savings account, which I've know that I shouldn't be doing, but I don't yet I don't have the skills yet or know what to do next. So is 30 client households like is that a is that a waypoint on the journey for you of growth? Or is the goal like I, I want to be at 30 and if people come on now, then as the saying goes, like someone has to step off the bus because we're trying to hang out at 30. Yeah, basically I'm wanting to hang out sort of where I'm where I'm at. One or two, uh, you know, clients more or less doesn't bother me too much. Mostly, I'm wanting to find those right, like more than more than the the actual demographics of the clients that I have. I'm looking for the like certain kind of psychographics of the clients and to make sure that they're a good fit for the firm and they'll be they'll be able to work with me and me work with them and for us to be able to make progress, right? 
So that's sort of what I'm looking for if I, if I do want to bring a client on, which, you know, maybe last year, I think I brought on three clients. So I'm not in a phase where I'm, I'm growing leaps and bounds anymore. And so why, why not? It's like, what, like, (laughs) I have all these questions, like why, why 30 and, and why not still growing and adding more? Well, I don't believe in full-time work as defined by the corporate world today. Okay. I mean, would you agree that as financial advisors, we do deep and thoughtful work for our clients? Yeah. I often out, outright draining work. I, I always look at you know, just some of the discussions out there of firms like you know, we're, we're scaling financial planning to like 200 clients per advisor, 300 clients per advisor. I mean, I've, I've looked at enough you know, P&Ls of advisory firms, like I totally get why the math works, but like that really doesn't sound enjoyable as a financial <laughs> advisor. Like that's, that sounds exhausting. No, it is exhausting. And so what I found for me, and this is just, is what works for me, right? Is that I need time and space to be able to provide that quality of service and hold the space for my clients so that they're not picking up on my brain going 7,000 miles a minute, right? And that they're not picking up on me trying to fit one more thing in my day. The 40-hour work week in and of itself was designed during the Industrial Revolution. It was designed to make widgets, not work in a knowledge-based economy, right? And I, I know that this is hard for a lot of people because I am yeah. definitely a recovering achievement focused to-do lister. Okay. Like love to-do lists, like but I'm a, honestly. I'm a recovering achievement focused to-do list checker. Yes. I've had to let to-do lists go. And the reason why is because it brings me back to that frantic sort of mind space of, you know, checking one more thing off the list, but honestly, the list just keeps getting longer. Right. In all seriousness, like how, how, how do you let go of the to-do list from your <laughs> career to-do list checker? There's a couple of techniques I use, but, you know, basically what I found is that in order to create a financial plan, um, even if you're not client facing, right, even if you're someone in the back office working on financial plans, like there's only so, so many formulas you can run to make it accurate. There is that art component, as you have often written about, to financial yeah. planning. And I think really the only way to explore that is to give yourself the time and space. And so I actually borrowed a concept from clients that I worked with who were therapists, right? And I don't know if you know this, but therapists do not work a full-time job. The maximum number of hours a therapist typically works is 20 to 25 hours in a week. And the reason is the same, right? I'm not a therapist. I don't do therapy work for my clients, of course. But the reason they limit their hours is the same as the reason I limit my hours. There's only so much of another person's energy and time and focus that you can kind of take on yourself before it starts to impact you. And so I wanted to make sure that I, you know, I wasn't presenting that frantic like mindset to my clients. And I just decided, look, one, maybe two of these deep thought work types of client meetings are are allowed on my calendar per week. That's it. I don't even know how you measure this. Like how many hours per week are you spending in, in the business? It ranges probably between 20 and 30 hours maximum. Okay. And I mean, I, you know, I just got back from a month long vacation in Mexico and I wasn't totally off of work, but I probably worked five whole five days throughout the entire time I was gone for a whole month. So I can take step back. I, you know, I can take steps back and I, I focus too on like days off per year and that, that creates time and space and balance for me as well. 
And so do you have targets of like only working X hours a week or or taking, you know, Y days per year of, of vacation of time off? So the hours per week is uh, less of a target for me. Like, I, you know, I'm okay if like I have a week that's a little bit more busy than another week, but I call it time take back. So what I do is uh, I allow clients to schedule calls or meetings with me up to like no more than two weeks in advance. So meaning like two weeks in advance, my, my schedule is definitely set and nobody else can add things to it. Right. And so what I do is I go in and at those time slots that aren't taken, which there often are time slots not taken. And I take back that time for myself. So those are things that, you know, when the tide is low in San Diego, I go explore and I take a walk on the beach. Or if I'm working on another type of creative project, you know, I schedule my time to do that. Or I just schedule veg out time and I, you know, I, I do things for myself, whatever that looks like for the day. So I'm not as big on like Mondays I do this and Tuesdays I do this and Wednesdays I only work two hours. It's more, uh, it's kind of like seasonality, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more of a like, there's a season to my work. Like in springtime, I do different things than in summertime. <laughs> and so did I hear you say like, clients can only schedule at least two weeks out, presuming so that you, you, know, you always know what your schedule looks like over the next two weeks as it would have had to have been pre-scheduled. But what if something's going on if clients want a meeting in less than two weeks? Yeah. I mean, so my philosophy about finances is that there are no emergencies in personal finance. If there are emergencies, we've got, we've got things that we haven't done correctly. And there's some exceptions to that. Like if somebody passes away, a parent, a, you know, a spouse or something like that, of course, there are emergencies that can come up. But for the vast majority of situations in financial planning, there really shouldn't be any emergencies. And so I kind of teach my clients that, not explicitly, but sort of implicitly in the way I approach financial planning and discussions around financial planning and discussions around, you know, setting expectations for clients. So that's a really important piece to this puzzle as well. Clients know that if they try to, you know, click on my Calendly link, they're not going to see dates available tomorrow. They just, they know that. And that's just an expectation that's been set. Of course, if something really is an emergency, clients know that they can reach me an email. I was going to say, are, like, is there still active email or phone calls or, or, or something in between? Or is it just oh, certainly. kind of... It, okay. You know, certainly people can expect an email back from me within 24 hours in most cases, for things if unless it requires a big you know new analysis or something like that but in that case i may you know say hey i need some time to think about this let's plan to meet you know in 2 weeks or 3 weeks or whatever the case may be and how often are you meeting with clients throughout the year i mean just how how active are you in in ongoing planning work with with 30 clients so for a new client i have a structured 3 meeting system that i take them through in the first year and so, you know, one meeting's around cash flow, money coming in, money going out, figuring out where to put savings, what types of accounts. One is about investing and giving them a good foundational understanding about investing strategies that we use and what we'll employ working with them. And then a third meeting to talk about what I call remainders. You know, this is like homeowners insurance and car insurance and benefits at work and uh, thinking about estate planning and those sorts of things. Things that clients definitely don't look at nearly often enough, but are hugely important, especially if there are holes in any of those coverages. And then for on a more ongoing basis, I guess for the first year, so it's usually about 15 hours that I spend on client work. 
on average, more or less. And then on a more ongoing basis, you know, we are are more responsive to what the client's actual needs are. You know, like if a client is really chewing on like, I, I've got six months and then I'm going to leave this job and I'm going to go on a six month sabbatical, you know, we might need to meet several times before they actually pull the trigger on taking a sabbatical because it's not because of the financial aspects of it. Cause we've long discussed the financial pros and cons and looked at all those scenarios. It's probably more about the mindset and the things that they are working with and the challenges that they're, that their brain is bringing up saying, Oh, this is scary. I'm leaving my job. And everyone tells me that I'm acting crazy. <laughs> so in a, on a more ongoing basis, it really depends on the client for how many hours I'm spending with them, but it's it's probably around that same like 12 to 15 hours a year. Okay. So how does it work then when you're off for a month as a as a solo advisor? I mean, are there do you have staff or other team around for for covering you if you're if you're in in Mexico for a month? <laughs> so I don't go off email, so I'm still getting my emails. I don't have any contractors or staff that read my emails or manage my calendar. I, I tend to do that myself or use robots like Zapier, for instance, to, to help manage my calendar. I do have help, a paraplanner help that works with preparing reports and like preparing a financial review for a client or my series of documents that I prepare for meetings in the first year for a new client. But because I have sort of set this expectation that there are no emergencies, right? I, I don't find myself getting interrupted, like outside of when I either I've invited a client to have a meeting at a certain time or they have something going on. But I will say that had something come up while I was in Mexico, you know, I have internet and I could take a call with someone, but I'm not going to do it in a way that upsets kind of my flow of what I have going on. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so how does this work from the investment side as as well if you've got assets under management uh, are you looking at portfolios are you trading and rebalancing while you're out do you have someone that's doing that work for you yeah I mean when it comes to trading and rebalancing you know there are the kinds of stuff you do towards the end of the year and what I plan to what I ended up doing um, when I was in Mexico is I did a lot of that work before I left is I looked at, you know, any tax loss harvesting that I needed to do that I hadn't already done in the year. I took a look at making sure there was enough cash in the accounts when I ran billing. But for for, mo- for the most part, a lot of that stuff is automated as well. Like using iRebal, for instance, in TD Ameritrade or having a quick spreadsheet that, that gets updated so that I can run in and do it. I think one thing that I am good at or that my brain is good at doing is sort of switching gears and like getting, I don't have to like work for an hour to get into figuring out what it is that I'm doing. My husband is a software engineer and he's always really frustrated with me when I can literally hop on for 10 minutes, work on something and go about my day when it takes him about three hours to actually get into the right mind space to write code and to prepare something Uh and get it done. Right. And so I think I've realized that that is a skill that I have or, you know, a gift that I have and that I can, you know, kind of my brain can kind of glum on to things pretty quickly and get some stuff done. And so it doesn't take too much out of my day if I have to run a rebalance really quick while I'm on vacation. And and you said there's a a pair of planner that helps with some of this as well. So is that a like is that an, a full time staff member that's covering for this, or is that 
some kind of out- outsourced position or relationship? Yeah, it's an outsourced contractor position. So I do have help in a couple of, of various areas, whether it be marketing, you know, a business coach, someone to do my bookkeeping, but all of them are contractors. So it's all part-time work. So can you talk about then who, who or what you use for this? I mean, are these like one-off people? Are these like businesses that serve advisors? I mean, how have you, have you built the, the structure around you for supporting the, the business? Yeah. So I actually hired my first paraplanner a year into having my firm because I was at a stage where I was like, I think I was bringing on three to four clients per month. And it was very overwhelming because any business owner will see that as their primary bottleneck of like the bringing on new clients piece. And so through word of mouth, I can't even remember the exact ways in which I found her, but through word of mouth, I found someone who was willing to do part-time work and help me with you know financial plan preparation, data cleanup, producing a few reports, you know, in the ways that I like it and that sort of a thing. And really just taking a load off of my plate as it relates to this like huge bottleneck of bringing on a new client. And I was nervous, rightfully so, because, you know, one year in, (laughs) in year two, like you're really not making that much money. And certainly you have to be mindful of profits and and that sort of a thing. And so it was, it was an investment. But what I realized is like, hey, this is actually so much more sustainable (laughs) when you have help. And not only that, but I I also learned that I really enjoyed the mentorship aspect of managing someone in this Mm. way. So someone young and new to the industry. And within, I think it was about eight, nine months to a year, we had done, she'd learned a lot and, you know, I was grateful to have her, but we sort of treated it almost like an an externship, if you will, or sort of like, you know, like an incubator in in a way, because I wanted to make sure she could live the career she wanted to live. And it turned out she wanted to go do a, do full-time work. And she actually went to work at a broker dealer at that time. But, you know, I was able to kind of coach her through that process and help her make the decision and look out for, you know, potential pitfalls and that sort of a thing. And so, you know, I've found my next para planner kind of in the same way, a little bit different. She was hoping to get her hours for her CFP requirement. And it's hard to do when you, when you are working part time, but, you know, we tried our best. And then at the end of it, when she was able to get her hours, you know, she ended up launching her own firm. And so again, I, I found this, I, I found that I really enjoyed this kind of mentorship opportunity. And so that's sort of the way I treat my paraplanner position is I'm, I know that they're not going to be with me forever. It's a part-time, it's part-time work. They're probably working with me and several other advisors, but, you know, let's make sure it's mutually beneficial for the both of us and, how can we make that happen and how can we get them living the career that they want to live in? All right. So then kind of two follow-up questions. One, just where are you finding them now? So I I find that I do a lot of mentorship informally in within the industry. And whether that be because, you know, people have heard me on a podcast or or saw through the XY Planning Network, that's a great network to meet people. But I just find that I get people reaching out to me pretty frequently and they just want to chat for a little bit, right? And so I have a special link on my Calendly where people can do that. You know, I have to limit it to some degree, but I'm, I'm always willing to talk to people in the industry. I'm an active mentor through the CFP board as it relates to the CFP exam and passing it and that sort of a thing. So through those various channels is how I typically find people 
to to serve as a paraplanner for me. And then I know for a lot of advisors, one of the well, one of the challenges for hiring in general is just it can take a lot to train the person and get them up to speed. I feel like that's only amplified if your like conscious expectation is that you're gonna mentor them and develop them and then they're gonna leave and move on. So I'm just wondering like how do you handle the being in this mode of constantly retraining a new person? I was consciously thinking about this when I first hired my first paraplanner, right? And so one of the projects that we worked on together was creating, you know, sort of an operations manual and templates for things. And so it's not too much. It's not this massive binder that they hand over to someone when they come on board. It's it's enough that it's manageable. And so basically, I kind of walk them through a little bit of a process that this is how I do things. And, you know, I'll always make sure to ask you, you know, for a, a due date so that, you and I both are setting the expectation for how long this is going to take. And here's the template that we use. And could you work on this now? And then this is the next step after that. And so I don't have to do a lot of training. Like I think back to my Bloomberg days, right? When I first went to work at Bloomberg, I literally had to sit in classes for two weeks before I could actually go do my job, right? So it's not at all like that. It's something that they can do that they're going to be interested in doing because they're either working on their CFP or they've already taken their exam and they're working on their experience requirement. And so it's going to follow like a similar sort of course of work to to sort of the way you think about like a capstone project for the CFP, for instance. And it's, it strikes me that right at the end of the day, if if your plan is to have these folks rotate through and and change on an ongoing basis then you know it 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 pays to spend a little more time putting that into an operations manual you making a template writing up processes and procedures and and then once you have that it's easier to train them because you've written an operations manual template and have processes and procedures right? yeah. it strikes me there's there's sort of a natural loop for this. Like, yes, if you're planning to do it, you will tend to systematize. And when you systematize more, it makes it easier to to, to do a, a more steady flow of new paraplanners coming through. Absolutely. And I, I have my own checklist of like things I turn on, things I turn off, you know, make sure to have this conversation. We don't use VP. We, if we're using, you know, public Wi-Fi somewhere, we have to use a VPN. You know, it's like, there's little things that it's like a reminder for me of like, these are the things we have to go through when we're onboarding or offboarding a paraplanner. And so what are you using to fill in some of the rest of is the, the, the support services around you? I think you'd said you're also like, you're hiring up for marketing, you're hiring up for business coach, you're hiring up for bookkeeping. So how, how does all that work? So that is either trial and error or through my network is typically how I found things. The story of like finding my business coach is I initially experimented with doing a, a group coaching program. And what I found having gone through that was that group coaching didn't really work for me because, you know, again, it feels like that commodity, the commoditizing aspect that I'm trying to actively work against hmm. with my business. You know, I'm not trying to commoditize financial planning. And so, you know, I met my business coach, Elizabeth Jatan, at an FPA conference, I think it was three or four years ago. And we started talking and, you know, I was like, well, do you happen to have any openings next year? And, and so kind of that's how that, that relationship came to be. With marketing, uh, I kind of experiment and do different things. Um, I don't have to actively market at this point. I think most clients, like my Google game and my SEO game is fairly strong where most clients just say like, oh, I found you on Google. I mean, I don't know exactly how, but I just found you on Google. Well, let's say, what are they, what are they looking for? Just what are you, you know, 
what do you keyword optimized around? Like just what's what's driving it? Fee only financial planner for women. You know, I think in okay. places like Washington, DC, for instance, there's still so few fee only financial planners that have an office in downtown DC. I don't think there are any actually. You know, it's just a rare thing. And so that's really helpful. In San Diego, it's kind of the same thing. There's there's a lot more fee only financial planners in San Diego area and in Southern California generally, but you know, fee only financial planner for women tends, I mean, I'm up there, you know, I'm up on the list. So that tends to bring, bring people through the door. And so how do you qualify them? I mean, what, what ultimately makes someone a qualified prospect for you and, and how do you winnow that down? I mean, a lot of it has to do with the savings rate. Like when it comes to just like, you know, facts and figures that they're, that they're filling out online So somebody who's in debt and who isn't saving anything right now is probably not going to be a good fit for me, I know. And I can refer them on to somebody like a financial coach, right? And that's something that I can do without even having to meet with them. For the the psychographics that I was talking about, the things that actually truly make someone a good client and working with me, I find it's just best to have a phone call. And so if they meet sort of that initial taking a look at the the form they fill out online, they meet those qualifications. Then I'll have a call with them and, and we can start talking about the things that make an ideal life for them and what they want to accomplish in the short run and the long run and get a better sense for how they approach these sorts of things. What answers are you looking for? You know, it's not black and white. Okay. It's, it's not really black and white, but my, but one of the main goals of the prospect meeting for me is also setting expectations for the client, starting to set those expectations and giving them a sense for, Hey, like you're not just hiring somebody for one-off advice, like someone that you can call randomly when you have a question that you can't Google or don't want to Google. You, you're actually hiring somebody who's a thinking partner for you and someone who's going to be a partner in what it is that you want to achieve and do in your life. And so some people are game for that. And you can tell just in the way that they communicate with you. And other people are not game for that. And they are sort of looking for that more commoditized financial planning approach, which plenty of people offer. And that's totally fine. And so I think you'd say there, there are things you're asking about on your website as well. I'm presuming just some uh, you know, questions on a Calendly link or, or something. What are you asking to screen in an intake form versus what you, what you kind of wait to ask in the, in the phone call? Well, I like to ask the, some of the financial questions in the intake form, just the basic ones of like, what is your income and what's your monthly savings rate? But I do specify in the form that if they're not comfortable or, you know, it's like, it's not a required thing. Like if they choose not to fill that out because it can be triggering or shameful or whatever the case may be, you know, they can skip it. So, you know, that's totally fine. But I do want to know a little bit about the motivation for why they reached out to a financial advisor now. And I think I phrase it, I, you know, I phrase it one way on the form. That's a very simple, like what prompted you to reach out to me? But then when we talk, I actually want, I'm actually getting, wanting to get at like, what is the reason you reached out now? Like, what was the event? What was the thing that happened to make you actually say, hmm, I really do need to find a financial advisor. I also like to learn a bit more about what they do now for seeking advice. Like, do they have anyone in their life that is a sounding board for them on finances? And if, if so, who is it? And that can be really useful information just to know, like, you know, do they rely on their parents? Do they rely on friends? Like, do they have no one? 
in their life that they're they're getting this information from and where where is it you know and i think it's also mm. reflective for clients to do that work and to think hmm no i don't have anyone right now or yes i do rely a lot on so and so because it starts that uh, expectation setting process that like we're not just talking about like a right or wrong answer when it comes to finances we're talking about like what makes the most sense for you and you know coming coming at it from their frame of reference for how they approach, how they've approached finances before. So, I mean, I, those are some of the, some of the questions. I mean, I also asked specifically like, and this is a, a George Kinder life planning training type question that I ask in a prospect meeting is, you know, in order to deepen my understanding of what's most important in your life, when you think about your ideal life, what are the three most essential elements? That's a discussion in the kind of the qualifying phone call. You're you're, yes. you're going to that yes. level of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm I'm just struck. Like certainly that that gives them a taste of what it's like working with the firm, right? I'm I'm going to venture say a lot of other advisors are not necessarily asking questions at that level in in an approach talk meeting. So for better or worse, they're starting to get a feel for okay, this is what it's going to be like if we work together. Yeah. And I think that pays a lot of dividends, right? Because I don't have a three-part prospecting meeting thing. That That is my prospecting meeting. And so at the end of that, and we we spend a little bit of time talking about what the process is like and what the fees are. And at the end of that, I ask, how is all that sounding to you? Is it in line with your expectations? And that leads to a conversation then of like, what are the next steps? And so I find that you know, after that meeting, a client is either going to sign on within two weeks of that conversation or they're not, and they weren't a good fit. And so I don't do a lot of follow-up or trying to get to yes or no, you know, some of the sales techniques, I have air quotes, (laughs) if you can't tell, some of the sales techniques that people are taught. I don't do any of that. And the reason why is because I don't have time for that. I mean, I don't want to spend my time. I should say, I don't want to spend my time chasing down prospects. It's just not something that brings me joy. And once you get to a point where you've got the the, comf- the clients and revenue that you want to be at, you don't you don't have to. <laughs> like, exactly. It's okay if they move on because you didn't actually really need the next new clients because you're good where the business is. Yeah, that, I mean that's another that's another side effect too. Is like I don't I'm not in a place where I I need need to bring on new clients. So yeah. So now help us understand the journey of just where all these clients came from. I, th- I think you said earlier you were you were at Bloomberg previously, so you know career change into the into the financial advisor side. But that er- early on you were within a year at a pace of three or four new clients a month, which is a lot of new clients coming on board. So yeah, take us back to the start of like what was the transition and launch into becoming a financial advisor, and and how did you get growth and new clients going early on? Yeah. So, I mean, I think somewhere deep down, I always wanted to do personal finance work. And I don't think I knew necessarily what a financial advisor was or knew that a financial advisor could be what I am doing now, if that makes sense. Like if I had any concept of a financial Mm -hmm. advisor, it was probably somebody who worked at a bank and it was involving like, you know, stockbroking or something like that. Like if I think back like way, way long, long time ago. And so I ended up pursuing more of a different path in my undergraduate and I studied government and I did, you know, basically government affairs work for almost 15 years. 
in Washington, D.C. As, as my job. And part of that led me to go work at Bloomberg because Bloomberg at the time, post-financial crisis, was launching a government product called BGov that was meant to serve lobbyists and members of Congress and their staff with insights into how, you know, business and industry kind of interact with government. So I was sort of Bloomberg's expert on Dodd-Frank and all the regulations surrounding post-financial crisis regulatory efforts and helped them kind of launch their product and wrote research for them and that sort of a thing. So that was a very interesting job, but it's very, very different from what I what it is I do today, obviously. Related, but not not the same. And so I think as I was thinking through that career, those career moves that I had made in, in DC and beyond, um, I always was trying to get closer and closer, whether it was like intentional or not as intentional, getting closer and closer to doing personal finance. And I got to a point at Bloomberg where I myself got completely burned out. I myself was in a place where I was very frustrated with my day-to-day life and job and had gotten so caught up in, I think, my identity being like what I did for work as opposed to something something I do versus something I am, if that makes sense. And so that just led to a, a need for me to shut it all down. And I decided to take a, sab- a sabbatical and initially started off as... I'm going to take six months and figure out my next steps. I had just finished my MBA at Georgetown. And so that maybe played a role in the, the burnout as well, because doing a full-time MBA while also working full-time is a challenge um, <laughs> for anyone. Oof. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, basically I was figuring out what my next steps would be. And one of my projects at business school was looking at an app for personal finance, kind of like a mint light app, um, did a little bit of research and like consumer market research on that. And so I was already sort of starting to look into the like RIA space and saw several resources, including your resources, Michael, the Nerds I View blog and all, all those sorts of things. And it led to me kind of daydreaming about how I potentially could serve people in my peer group people who had just finished their MBA, for instance, and were trying to think about next steps in their life or um, people who had had a similar career journey to me and wanted to really take their lives to the next step from a financial perspective. And luckily, by the time I wanted to do all of this, a lot of the people who had gone before me, several years before me, had set up a lot of cool infrastructure around the RIA space, whether it be technology, you know, having support and, you know, networks of people that you could have study groups with and that sort of thing to help me launch and, and figure things out. And so I think you know, my approach was, was to like take the series 65 exam and see how that worked and, you know, then start my CFP coursework and see how that worked out. And all of that moved along fairly quickly and easily. And at the same time, I started to do some discussions. I was based in DC at the time. So I was, I was sitting down with a lot of local RA advisors, like through found, finding them through NAPFA and things like that to talk with them about their experience. And my hope was that maybe one of them would want to hire me at least part-time so that I could, you know, learn the business, so to speak. And what I found, which was really interesting, which turned out to motivate me even more was that very few of these firms hire anyone. Very few of these firms are growing and there are a scant few like women-owned 
firms or firms that mm-hmm. focus on working with women. And so I immediately saw an opportunity and was highly motivated to say, well, I'm just going to have to do this myself because it doesn't really, what I want to do doesn't really exist. And certainly working with people in their thirties is not something that is, is done right now, or at least not done at scale. So that's what kind of motivated me to start my firm. And I, so I did it. So were you doing your, like your series 65 and CFP coursework and starting to talk with local advisors? Was this all while you were on sabbatical? Was this starting while you were still at Bloomberg and then you did the sabbatical? Like No, it was all, I was all on sabbatical. There's no way when I was working at Bloomberg if I, that I would have had the time to, you know, to do that kind of work meaningfully anyway. I mean, I, they had me back and forth to New York, you know, every other week I was doing a lot of travel. I was traveling around the country, doing a lot of talks. So there's just no way I would have been able to do it without having the time and space during my sabbatical. So what came next as you decided I'm, I'm going to launch? Luckily, I found the XY Planning Network who helped tremendously with even just the, you know, the basics of compliance and what do you file where and how does that go? <laughs> Those sorts of questions. And I just kind of took all of the, the lists and to-do items and like worked at them, basically. But I think having had the sabbatical and also having just come off my MBA, I still had that sort of steady mindset. And I will say like, it's very rare and the CFP exam is hard, but like I worked on it from August to December, did my capstone, took my exam the following March and passed on my first try. So I did a very like condensed CFP exam kind of thing, you know, finishing it up and all that kind of stuff. So what was the vision when you were launching the firm? Like where did it, where did it start? What was the original business plan? Well, having just finished my MBA, I was all very, I was very much gung-ho on changing the world and doing something totally different and disrupting an industry. And, you know, I'm going to serve 200 clients in the first two years. (laughs) It was, you know, looking back on it and I, I learned pretty quickly just by talking to other advisors that that was pretty unrealistic for a lot of different reasons. But I also learned too, for myself, like as I started actually putting pen to paper and doing financial plans for real humans, that I didn't want to just have this like templated financial plan that I send out to people, right? And I wanted to spend time with them. The first clients that I found that I got were, uh, I sent out a LinkedIn message to my contacts and I was basically like, hey, this is what I'm doing now. Let me know if you are interested. And I had an old intern that worked for me years prior call me. And then I had one of my business school colleagues call me. And so those were my first two clients basically that came on. And then I was so grateful as well to NAPFA because there were advisors there in, in DC that I talked to. They were kind of mentors to me. And then I just asked a simple question and I would advise anyone starting a business to, to ask this exact simple question, which is, you know, when you get clients who don't fit for what you're looking for in your firm, what do you do? And more often than not, they say, well, I don't actually don't know. I don't have anyone to give them to. Would you be interested? And so, yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So clients like three, four, five, six were probably from that. It's like, you know, people, other advisors referring me to clients that they had couldn't take on basically. So is that just, is that what drove the growth in the, in the first year, just kind of communication to, you know, friends, friends, colleagues, existing relationships and referrals from other advisors of clients who weren't a good fit for them, but could still be a good fit for you? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like, I always tell people who are just starting out, it's like, you need to make sure that your friends and people that are close to you can describe to another person what it is that you do and why you do it. And it's going to take a little bit of work because there's nuance to that. But, you know, you need to be bold enough to explain that to people. So then you have little folks out in the world, you know, talking about you and who, you know, who you are and what you do. And that's going to directly contribute to your success. And the surprising bit about that is a lot of those people can be within your own industry. And that's what's so wild to think about is like most people think, oh, I've got to be leery of anyone in my own industry because they're just going to steal clients from me. But I, and I, I share this with my own business owner clients too. It's like, no, you actually, that's a, that's a, a hugely valuable resource is people in your own industry as contacts, not only for, you know, referring out, but just from being able to learn from and share ideas with, you know, it's easy to learn from each other. So how did you do the communication to friends, former colleagues and, and the rest? I mean, I know for a lot of the newer advisors, it it kind of feels you know, awkward or intimidating sometimes like, hey, you know, you, you knew me for 15 years in this thing, but like now I'm a financial advisor. <laughs> yeah. Like, how did you communicate it? Yeah. The word financial advisor tends to scare people. And, I, and I've seen that, you know, even today. But, you know, everyone's got a reason why they're doing this. And so I, uh, you know, I would focus on that, you know, getting at your why and figuring out sort of an elevator pitch for lack of a better term of, you know, your why story. Like, why, why are you doing this? And what makes it interesting? And I think that that will be leaps and bounds. I mean, for a long time, what I would say in, you know, a minute or less was, I want to be able to serve people who, who are like me, you know, who, who aren't served by the industry at this point, mm. who are flat out turned away by the industry at this point. And so that's the reason why I wanted to do, become a financial advisor. So what did it look like in the first year in terms of clients coming in? Like how, how many clients were you getting? Where were they coming from? Yeah. I mean, I think in the first year I was able to bring on 25 clients or something like that. And I doubled it the next year, doubled okay. it to 50. And I think part of it was, you know, my fees at the time. When you have a close rate that's like 80, 90%, that's a real indicator that you're not charging enough, FYI. Uh-huh. But, you know, it was this idea of, you know, affordable and, you know, we're going to do this process. And and it was a combo of all those things that I've mentioned, which is Google search, you know, CFP board or, or NAPFA search, and then um, other advisors in my own, my own actual network of people. And so were you already frame, starting to frame around financial planning for women and fee only financial planner for women some of what you said your your you know your your Google SEO game is 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 pushing well for you now like did it did it start there was that a focus for you from day 1 or or was it look I'm launching I'm just going to get any anybody who's willing to do business with me and and pay me and I'll figure out how to focus it more later uh, no, I mean, definitely my website reflected that early on. You know, I, I worked with men too my first year. I mean, I would take more clients than necessarily like my website laid out. But that's the thing that you realize too when you first start is, you know, people don't always read. So, Which is just funny to me because like your homepage literally says, we help women dream big and navigate their <laughs> financial freedom. Like it says we help women on the homepage more than once. Yes, it does. It does. 
but that's okay. I mean, people <laughs> can can read as much as they want to read and I'll meet them where they are. <laughs> but yeah, so I was already targeting that space. And I think over time, maybe the like the nuance has changed just slightly or the, you know, the phrasing maybe has changed a little bit. But overall, like I haven't done too much broad swath changes to like marketing, the marketing language that I use to target people. So I'm, I'm sure, as you know, like a lot of advisors, when they get started, really, really struggle in getting clients going. And, and I mean, may not may not see 25 clients in, in their first two plus years, much less you know, 25 in year one and doubling it in year two. So to what do you attribute the just the, the, the fact that you seem to get such traction and it went so well early on? I mean, I... I think it was it was really excellent to have support around me. You know, I found a couple of different really good study groups, like, you know, working groups of people that I could connect with that were in similar stages of business. And I think that's really helpful because meaning meaning other advisors. Uh, other advisors. Yeah. And I think that's really helpful because you could say something like this is really crazy. Is it just me? And they'll all they, they will agree. No, it's not just you. I've that's happened before. Or this is how I've handled it. And and how did you find your study group since you were coming to the industry not having existing industry connections for study groups? Well, the XY Planning Network was a good group. NAPFA was a good group. I think my one of the first conferences I went to was XYPN and quickly met another advisor who was, I think, two years ahead of me. And her and I hit it off. And so we started having a monthly call. And you know, XY Planning Network actually sets up study groups for people. And so that was another another way that I that I connected with a group of folks that I still meet with today, actually, who are who are in similar stages of business. So it was it was a little bit of that, like kind of the connections around me, the associations that I'm that I belong to. Okay. So what what happened next? Because just I'm struck that you're like yeah, you know, things got going and I and I grew to 50 clients after the first two years and you're at 30 now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so some things changed in that in that journey. Like what what changed? What what shifted? Well, what changed is after a while, I would start to joke with my husband. The running joke was, oh God, I have too many clients. And this joke, because why would you ever say, like, I have too many clients? Like, it's money coming in the door, and you're a business that's two years old. But the truth is, is that was a real eye-opener for me at that point, because I was nervous and scared to death about getting back to a place where I was when I was working in corporate world, right? Mm. I never, never want to go back to that, you know, working 60 hours a week, always on, everything's an emergency, life's an emergency, work's an emergency. You know, I, I was in real danger, I would say, of getting, to, getting back to a place like that where everything felt mm-hmm. like an emergency. And so I started to, to reassess where I wanted to be. And at that point, I definitely changed my fee structure a bit. And I did a lot of like, I started to slow down the number of clients that I wanted to bring on. And it was at that time too, that I was basically like one client a month is maximum that I wanted to bring on. But even that is a lot, you know, in a given year. So by addressing fees for new clients, um, that was a natural kind of winnower of of new business coming in. Meaning you just started ratcheting min- minimum fees higher and that, that exactly. started calling the group. So what... What were your minimums originally, and then what did you start raising them to? So I think my minimum was, before was like 
four or 5,000, something like that. So each, each year I would, you know, I have like an upfront fee that I charge and then a monthly fee. So each year I would ratchet up both like the upfront fee and then the monthly fee and both of the, they correspond to a, you know, an annual minimum kind of a thing. So how, how would that break down in practice? Is that like 2,000 upfront and 2,000 ongoing? Was that you know, more upfront, less ongoing, less upfront, more ongoing? How did, how did that break down? I think originally it was something like 1,500 upfront and 250 a month or something like that. Okay. That was the original. And then, you know, add 25 on the month and add an additional 500 or 1,000 upfront and each year kind of a thing that I would do. And so now like, you know, it's 350 a month and... 2000 for for an individual and 4000 for a couple up front. Okay. So you you started lifting minimums just to slow the flow. So do you recall I mean what what was revenue at after the first 2 years just that you got comfortable to the point of saying like I think I'm going to I think I'm going to slow the flow. I mean was it was everybody at 4000 plus so by by the time you're in the third year with 50 clients you're you're at 200,000 ish of revenue? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. Okay, no, definitely not. Well, I guess because you don't get the upfront after the first year, so the <laughs> ongoing ongoing is lower. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think top line revenue in my second year was less than eighty thousand a year. Okay, so not everybody was at full minimum. You're still because you're still ratcheting up early on. Yeah, not just that, but like the timing of when someone came on. You know, oh right. If if they sign up in December, you don't get the you don't get exactly. the four thousand for the year. You get like maybe the first check. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So one thing I learned in that year and years beyond too is like I started to do more management of assets for people because initially I was kind of like, no, I just want to do this. I, I want to do this without managing assets. Like I want people to be able to do it themselves. But what I realized very quickly was that the only people who end up coming to you, or a lot of the people who end up coming to you, who are do-it-yourselfers are near retirees, like people within 10 years of retirement. And so they basically wanted to pay for like a gut check and then never, mm. never speak to you again. And so I was attracting these people who weren't at all fitting the mold of who I actually wanted to work with. And so I realized like I had to do a lot more expectation setting and addressing that through like my process and the fees that I charge and everything else. And part of that too was starting to manage assets for people because what I realized is that for the clients that I was managing assets for, we were doing so much for them. We were doing, and they were doing, having much more success. Like uh, I had a client save for a down payment on a house in Washington, DC within a year, which is tough to do. I mean, they ended up saving like $250,000, you know, in a little over a year. And they wouldn't have been able to do that if I wasn't working with them, you know, and I wasn't managing their assets for them. They just wouldn't have, they would not have executed on the strategy. They just would not have. And I found that time and time again with clients is that there was this component missing in the advice only category of, you know, the execution and advice only works great for people who are ready to execute, but there's a whole lot of people out there (laughs) who aren't ready to execute. They think they are, but they're not. And they don't actually take action when they need to. And so what I found by managing assets for people was that I could do so much more for them. And there was so much more appreciation, both in my appreciation of working with the client and seeing their progress, but also the client themselves seeing so much progress that it was just 
like, you know, it was just much better for me than kind of the churn that I would see on a pure retainer advice only model where people would be like, well, great. I worked with you for six months and I'm happy, so I don't need you anymore. But they have all these things that they actually hadn't done yet. So it sounds to me like a AUM for you wasn't necessarily a, a like a, a like a business revenue decision. Okay, I need to charge this. I need to charge the fees this way to get to the the revenue I'm trying to charge or generate higher fees. It was it sounds like from your end more of a psychographic issue of just the the clients who had and were willing to delegate assets and work with you on them and implement with you on them tended to be the kind of people who implemented things with you in general. And those mm-hmm. were enjoyable clients to work with. Like it was, yeah. the, it was the psychographics of people who are willing to engage AUM more than literally the like, I need to get assets in our management fees to get my fees to the level I want. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, that was a huge surprise to me because my hypothesis, if you would ask me in 2015, was not that at all. My hypothesis was that I was going to be able to help do-it-yourselfers. And the people who are like me, like I was like, I'm going to help people like me and I can do this myself, right? And so, but what I found in real life and in practice was that I enjoyed much more working with these people when we could all see the benefits happen in real time. And you know, I, I had an experience where I saved a client so much money in taxes by doing some tax loss harvesting after they had huge capital gains. And I was like, that just paid for my fee for the next, you know, four years <laughs> or five years. You know, that's value. That's like real tangible value. So how did the business, I guess, just how did it continue to evolve? I understand like raising up the fees to slow the pace down a little more, you got it down to one a month and and maybe even not that often because of the work of, of new clients. But that's still like you're at 50 plus clients, you're slowing down to, to just air quotes one, one a month, but you're at 30 today. So mm-hmm. like, how did you get from there? To, how did you get from there to here? Like what, what came next in, in framing up the business? So over the course of the next two years is when I brought on, you know, business coach and, and help to help me think through like where I actually want to take this in the future and who I actually want on this bus with me. And Elizabeth Jatan gave me this beautiful quote. I don't know if it's hers or something that she got from somewhere else, but it's like you're creating a garden. And initially when you create your first garden, it's beautiful. But over time, things change and shift and some things grow faster and some things don't. And so it's nice to go in and redesign your garden from time to time. And so over the course of the last three years, basically, I've been redesigning the garden of who I actually want Mm -hmm. and, and what that looks like. And, you know, being clear with that upfront with clients instead of, you know, burning myself out trying to do a bunch of prospect meetings that are going nowhere. And so what that meant was a lot of people, quote unquote, graduated from foundational financial planning is what I called it. And so I would send emails to people and I would say, look, congratulations, you've done so much work. When you, when you started this, this is the things that you were focused on. We were had the opportunity to work on all these things. And now you've completed foundational financial planning. So you hadn't necessarily sold them on foundational financial planning coming in. Just that's how you explained it to them as you basically said, like, we're we're not going to be working together anymore because you joined me for all this financial planning help. We've done all this work together. Like, congratulations, you've really put the foundations in place. Exactly. Exactly. I wish you the best. Yeah, exactly right. And it's very cordial. And I, you know, I wish these people all the best, right? 
But that's exactly the way I started thinking about, you know, my original business plan was that my original business plan was meant to get people on a foundational footing where they could, they could kind of fly on their own. And I was no longer going to do that. Like I want lifelong clients. I, you know, I want to be that partner with them through their financial life. And so that means that, you know, I, I ended up, you know, letting go of a lot of people and that was okay. And uh, consequently, you know, my life improved in a tremendous way. It's like that. It's exactly what you think. It's like the 80, 20 principle, you know, 80% of your clients are fine, but there's that 20% who take up so much time and give you that anxiety. And you have this dread sometimes before you take meetings with them. It's like, I have no time for that and no patience for that. So those are the kinds of people that were like the first to let go. And then I started moving kind of up the list. And my goal is that I don't want any, I don't want A, B, C, D clients. Like I just want A clients, you know? And I think that's what my clients deserve is that service. And so, so that's, you know, what's led me to where I am today. And as a result, I mean, initially retainer revenue and, you know, financial planning fees were like 75% of the business. And now it's totally flipped where AUM is, you know, the primary and AUM is like, you know, 75% of the business and 20 and financial planning fees are 25% of the business. So as you set up these, these clients to, to graduate because they've completed the foundations, did you refer them out to another advisor? Did you try to send them somewhere else? You just kind of told them like, congratulations, you're in a better place. You know, I don't think we need to continue working together, wishing you the best in life. And, and that's that. Yeah. For some people, I held their hand a bit more. Like if they were in a transitionary phase or something like that, I wanted to make sure that there was like a handoff. And so I, I found another advisor for them. I spent a lot of time on it because these people had been with me for three years or four years at this point. Right. So there's, there's some loyalty there. For other people though, I would just maybe send a list of advisors to them and let them do their own due diligence of who they wanted to reach out to or it just maybe depended on the the kinds of situations that they were they were in. So it sounds like you had your list of people who were going to be you know invited off the bus, but then were much more specific for each of like literally the path for it. It sounds like because a few you just said like congratulations, you've graduated. Off with you. Others, it was here's a list if you still want to work with an advisor. Others, it was okay, I'm going to work with you a little bit more directly to help you work with this new advisor instead and 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 did the transition more hands-on. So just mm-hmm. very client by client about how, how they were helped off the bus. Yeah, yeah. So how did you decide who comes off the bus? <laughs> well, like I said, I mean, if it was somebody that I had that sinking feeling just based on my experience with them in the past of like, I'm kind of dreading meeting with this person, it, it's an indicator that they weren't a good fit for my firm. So that was like the first, first call of people. Almost literally the gut feeling. Like if you have that sinking feeling in the gut, when you get the email or the, like the Calendly confirmation that they've just scheduled another meeting with you, if that's your gut response, when you see a meeting with them, like that's probably one of the people that needs to be on the list. Yeah. Yeah. You've definitely got to trust your gut, you know? And then, then there were other people that it was purely just a financial thing. Like they they had a much more complex 
set of financial challenges that they were working through and they were paying me like a base fee that I had been charging them for three years. So I hadn't done a good enough job of explaining to them like things have changed over time and you're now doing X, Y, and Z and it's more complicated. And rather than have that difficult conversation of trying to raise their fee, probably like triple it or quadruple it, I just decided to let them go. And I think probably it, it most likely had to do with the fact that they also probably weren't a very good fit for the firm and where I wanted to go. So was it an, an all at once thing? Like I've come up with my list of 25 clients I'm going to graduate and then we send the letters and start to doing the thing and six to 12 months later we're there? Or, or was it a more gradual of like, we're going to move a few and then we'll see how it feels and we'll move a few more and see how it feels yeah, and move a few more? It's definitely the latter. Okay. That's, that kind of thing is hard to do. That's a big, huge transition. And so I needed to be like mindful of what I, what I could handle with something like that. And so I sort of dipped my toe in the water and I would do it a few at a time and see how it went and, you know, send the email, cringe, what's going to happen. And then it would go fine. And then I would get the courage to do another one kind of thing. So were there any that got like upset or, you know, how, how dare you, or I was with you from the start, right? Like all those things that we, I know, get, tend to get anxious about. I mean, did, did you get any friction or pushback from a few? No, not a single one. It was, it all <laughs> went very smoothly. So all, all that stuff we build up in our head, like none, <laughs> yeah. none, none of it. All of those fears were unfounded, thankfully. And so it was, it was not, it, that was not an issue, thankfully. Yeah. So how many ultimately did you, did you call down from the client list? I mean, quite a lot. You know, some of them happened through a general attrition without me having to, you know, let them go, so to speak, because there were a lot of people who, you know, initially I had like a six month plan and then I moved it to a 12 month plan. So there were a lot of people who it was just at the end of the 12 months, I didn't renew their contract or I didn't move forward. And then there were other people who had been working with me for years. Those were the ones that were the harder harder ones where I actually had to write the, you've graduated email. And so did you have a target of like, okay, I'm up at this 50, 60 plus clients and it's feeling really draining and I'd really like to get it down and I figured out 30 is my number. So I'm just going to keep winnowing this down till I get 30 or, or do you start winnowing and just decide, decide when it's winnowed enough? Like how... How did, how did you get to 30 as a particular number in this journey? It's not necessarily a, like a hard and fast target for me. Like I think I could probably do my job with less and be happy. I think I could probably bring on a few more clients and and also be happy. So it's not like a, a metric that I'm I'm tracking. It's like, how close to 30 can I get? I think it's it's a little bit has more to do with like what I feel my capacity is and how excited I, I am to bring on a new client when I speak to them. And so the people that I, I let go of, you know, that didn't exist, you know, like I, I had no longer had that like excitement and, you know, joy thinking about working with them. But the people that I still have, I do have that, right? I do have that excitement and joy. I think that's kind of how I look at it versus like a specific target of how many people I let go of each year or something like that. And just how did business revenue play into this? I mean, was there a, were you going backwards in revenue on this? Was it kind of treading water because, you know, you're, you're tending to let some clients go who may have been like the older ones at the much lower fees. And then you're taking on new ones that are are, that are at the higher fees. So you, you can let a few go to get one big client and replace them. So was revenue going backwards or kind of treading water or still chugging forward? No, that's the beauty of this is that when you let go of 
you know, put, spending your time that is not fruitful for you, you can spend time where it is very fruitful. So <laughs> I've never had a year where I had to go backwards in revenue. And, you know, when I look back on like my compound annual growth rate year over year, it's been almost 40%. So I've had many years where it was like triple digit growth. And then, you know, more recently it's, it's leveled off the growth has, but over time, like compound annual growth has been almost 40%. Because at the end of the day, just more more bigger, gooder clients were coming on than the ones that you were letting go. Because I guess almost well, not universally true, but all, all, very often the the ones that don't feel good, that aren't good fits, you know, kind of tend not to pay your full fees. Because yeah. if they valued you that much, it usually feels like a better relationship in the first place. Right, right. So how long did it take to get to this transition of, I don't know, I, 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 I kind of think of this as like right-sizing the practice, like, whoops, took on more clients than I meant to. This doesn't actually feel good. Going to winnow this number down until it gets to a better place. Like, how long did it take you to go through the right-sizing process? It was probably a full three years. Like, I wasn't happy with where I was up until like the end of last year, basically. And so it took it took three years to kind of go through the process and figure out like, oh, I'm happy with my client roster here and I'm I'm not like focusing on some new achievement or something like that. So what what led it to take that that long as opposed to I'm not happy, I'm just going to call them like I want to get through this in a year. It doesn't feel good to be not not thrilled for 3 years. <laughs> yeah, well I think it has more to do with like who you replace and like who you found yeah. to fill those seats, right? Cuz it does it takes time. You yep. you know these people aren't all just going to knock on your door in one month uh, or in one year even. And so I think that's the part that took took the time. So you were waiting as new clients come came on board, you would make a decision to let go of some as opposed to just letting go a whole bunch of them and try to grow your way back later? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, there was there was definitely like a year where I let go of like 10 people in a, in a year kind of a thing. And then I kind of staggered it on a, on a more ongoing basis, but I didn't do like a one-for-one one thing. It had a lot more to do with my, like kind of my mindset and my capacity to go through that process with my existing client roster. And so what were the mindset shifts from your end is to get get comfortable with that and get there? I mean, again, there's that whole, it's like a, f- a fear of rejection of like, mm-hmm. if you reject somebody, are they going to reject you back? Or, you know, there's that that goes through your mind. There's, there's also guilt of like, I, you know, I've done a lot of, I've helped this client do a lot of things and what are they going to do if I'm no longer here? <laughs> you know, there's those sorts of feelings that come up. So it's and, just- And how do you, and how do you deal with that? Or I guess it, it took you three years to- it, It's a fair that. amount of self-reflection, honestly. <laughs> like I think, you know, sometimes I have a lot of courage and I'm fine with it. And other times I just don't, I don't feel up to it. So it might, it just might take time, you know? And so I just try to be patient with myself as I try to be patient with my clients, right? It's like, I can decide affirmatively to do something, but it may take some time to execute and that's okay. So as you look back through this journey, what surprised you the most about building your advisory business? I think it never would have occurred to me that I could work so few hours yet feel fulfilled both financially and sort of mentally, right? Like I, I would have always said, oh, I'm going to create the, the business that I want to have, right? And I have control over that. But I don't know that I could have dreamed up like th- as good of a situation as I have it, <laughs> so to speak. What did you miss that you d- you didn't realize it could go this well, but but it does? 
You know, I think whenever, I think there's just a general viewpoint in the world of, you know, entrepreneurship is hard and it's always going to be hard and you're going to struggle and, you know, this and that, right? And so you, you kind of have that expectation going into it to some degree and you want to work against that. You want to do everything you can to not feel that, but it's still, you know, it kind of makes its way into your psyche to some degree to expect that, I guess. And so I think letting go of, of it and just being okay with like creating the business that I want to create has been really helpful. Um, and I think starting with when I did the George Kinder registered life planner, you know, five day evoke training in 2020, it was a, it was a big turning point for me because it was there in Hana, Hawaii that I decided to write a book that was not going to be financial planning focused, (laughs) um, that was going to be sharing a lot more of my story, not just as a business owner, but my life story to people in hopes that my, my vulnerability could help other people live the life they were meant to live instead of toiling away at it and being scared to talk about it. Because I, I felt that way for a lot of, t- a lot mm. of time, right? It's like, right. I always kind of wanted to, to do personal financial planning or personal finance to some degree, but I had no, no skills or no way to figure out how to do that, you know, when I was, when I was in college or whatever. And so, you know, that's the, that was a big motivational turning point, I think, of giving myself this, the time and space to reflect enough that, no, I, in fact, I can create whatever it is that I want. And simply writing it down is more than 80% of people do. <laughs> and then when you write it down and you start talking to people about it, it's pretty amazing what you can achieve. And when the energy is there, when it, when it flows and you feel like you're in flow. And so, so yeah, 2020 was a big year for me because in January, I decided to write my book. And December 6th, 2020, I published The Resiliency Effect. So it was a quick process because I had a lot of help and I was motivated and I had that energy flowing behind me. But it was a tremendously valuable project, not just because I got to, you know, share share some of this with the world and hopefully it's making a difference in people's lives, but also it was therapeutic and, and helpful for me too, just to to write write down a lot of my story and and have it live like in paper <laughs> somewhere. So what was the what was the low point for you on this journey? I think a lot of my lowest points probably came many years before I ever started a business. And so one benefit of my experience is that I know like that I don't want to go to those low points. And so I I can kind of avoid before I get get too far in. So like the example of realizing that I was really getting close to burnout and making some changes to to make sure that I didn't go all the way. Like that was a low point, right? Um, but I was able to turn it around pretty quickly. So, so how do you find those points? Detect those points? I mean, I, I, I feel like a lot of us at least try to be reasonably aware that we don't, we don't really want to drive ourselves into a wall, drive ourselves into the ground. Yet a lot of us do at the end mm-hmm. of the day, right? I mean, burnout's a thing, which means most of us don't actually head off the burnout before we hit the burnout. We we hit the burnout and then we're unhappy. So, the, what is it that you seem to be able to, you know? find or sense or spot the burnout points and intervene before you actually hit them? I think, you know, when I feel like there are emergencies happening all around me, that's a really big indicator. When I feel pressure to complete things or feel that pull to like start at the to-do list again, (laughs) for instance, 
those are big indicators to me that I'm doing something wrong and I need to reset some expectations or, or address it in head on. I think, you know, I have a history of, you know, anxiety and depression. So when you start to feel those twinges of like the blues, so to speak, you know, it's like, I need to go take a walk. I need to go outside. I need to change my location. I can't just sit in a room and try to get through whatever it is I'm stressed about. Yeah. Although at the same time, I'm struck that just, you know, if I'm feeling the pressure to complete things, that's a big pull. If I'm, I'm feeling the pressure to do the to-do list again, like, I don't, I feel like for, for most of us, that's so ingrained in reality to say like, oh, if you feel pressure to complete things, you might want to back off. It's like, well, and I think I crossed that line like 14 minutes ago <laughs> and have been sitting on the wrong side of it ever since. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's that's one of those topics that I explored a lot in my book, the resiliency effect, right? It's like, in order to be resilient, we have to figure out for ourselves what is what is good enough and like what is appropriate enough. And for me, what I learned is that it's not always additive to add more things and to try to get more done. A lot of times you need to look for what you need to take away. And so rather than trying to learn a new skill or trying to life hack your way into solving more problems, you know, maybe you need to think about unlearning some of your behavior or removing things from your to-do list. And so, you know, that's a whole chapter that I explored in my book and talking with a lot of people is I found that that is one of those skills, you know, is to, to actually unlearn versus continuously being additive or trying to fit more in. So for folks who are listening, this is episode 271. So if you if you actually want to find a copy of, of Katie's book, we'll, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 271 and, and go to the show notes area, we'll have, we'll have a link out for the resiliency effect. Katie, I, I am struck though by just the kind of that framing of to be resilient, you have to figure out what is good enough because good enough tells you what things you actually need to keep so that everything else you can start taking away and deleting and getting rid of it because that's how you get back to the good place. For sure. For sure. And I think that's why I love that I had my sabbatical experience because that was a huge reset moment. And I think it's one of the reasons why I advocate for my clients to at least consider going through a sabbatical if they're trying to make a big life change. Because sometimes our brain is only allowing us to step back and like take a survey of the land when we don't have all these other things spinning and all these tops that we're trying to keep in the air, you know, and you're exactly right. It goes against everything we've ever been taught and it goes against everything that, you know, our ego says <laughs> that we need to be doing. We need to be doing more. We need to be achieving more. We need to have a goal. We need to have a to-do list. And so it does take a real change in mindset to take that approach. So as you look back at this journey over the past six years, like what do you know now about building the advisory business you wish you could go back and tell you from from six years ago when you were when you were still getting started? You know, I think it's not just about your knowledge and the knowledge that you have that you can give to your clients. I've found that, you know, in a lot of my work, it's like 80% mindset stuff. <laughs> and mm -hmm. sometimes we even have to go back to the drawing board and just do like kind of like coaching around mindset to get people to, to actually make decisions that will be in their best interest. You know, good financial planning is not just about holding up your certifications and your credentials and saying like, I know, I know the answer. I know the answer. It's, it's holding space for clients and being there as a sounding board when they need it 
more than anything. It's useful to have answers, obviously, but it's not the primary focus. And that's something I had to learn over time because I kind of approached it that way in the beginning. Like, no, look at me. I have the answers. Hire me, please. So was there a particular turning point or like event or moment where that changed for you? I don't know that it was a specific turning point. I think it was just lessons learned over time. You know, you get frustrated um, maybe when a client doesn't take action on something that you think is really important. And I, for me, I always have to stay, take a step back from that and realize like, is this just me being frustrated or do we need to change our approach do we need to ask the client, like, what do they think about this? Hmm. There's a whole kind of few steps that that I've learned to take instead of just immediately assuming like the client is in the wrong or somehow they're not good enough because they can't achieve this one thing that I suggested. So what advice would you give to younger, newer planners looking at coming into the industry today? Definitely don't be afraid of both self-reflection and reflection among your peers. And I caution because I don't want people to think reflection means competition or comparison because that is really detrimental. (laughs) Comparison to others is never going to get you anywhere. But using your peers to reflect uh, on one another and share experiences, share both your highs and your lows is a really great way to, to grow and learn. That isn't immediately obvious when you first start out because... Sometimes people feel like we have something to prove and you've got to do it all on your own. And that's just not the case. You know, for me, I had to learn a lot about asking for help because there's a real pull in, in my life of like needing to be independent and wanting to do everything on my own. And so, you know, I, I really had to learn that for myself. Like, no, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to, you know, to make it a team effort as opposed to an individual effort. And as a solo firm owner, like you have to figure out what that looks like for you because you don't have coworkers anymore. You know, you don't have people to bounce ideas off of that are in your office at the water cooler. So you have to make that for yourself. And, you know, for me, it's, it's been finding good study groups to, to work with and to have like periodic times when you get to check in with people. So what comes next for you on this journey? So I am still in the phase of actively trying to, you know, not have new achievements to unlock or things that I'm focused on and trying to be okay with a bit of homeostasis and enjoying the the, kind of the balance that I've found in my life as opposed to needing to add more things on. So writing the book was a good, a good lesson in that because immediately when you write a book and publish a book, right? It's like, Everybody not only is asking you, well, what comes next? What comes next? But also you have like this thing that you've worked on that you want to share with people and you want to market, but it takes a lot of time and effort to market. And so I I actually actively have to work against, you know, that pull of, (laughs) well, maybe I should write a course and maybe I should do this and maybe I should do that (laughs) because, you know, before too long, uh, it's like I'll be... I'll have all the media covered and then I'll just be doing nothing but media <laughs> or, you know, something like that. So, so yeah, that's my challenge because it's, it is hard to go to industry events and like, well, I'm not actually working on anything right now. I've like worked on, worked on a lot of things. So I'm okay. Like chilling for a while. <laughs> that's a weird conversation to have. <laughs> right. Well, does it say, how do you just deal with an, an industry that has a, a whole lot of you know, if, if you're not growing, you're dying sort of mentality. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, I'm not going to win any producer awards. Whoops. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to be, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have that and that's okay, but I am creating a business that's sustainable for me and that's really important. And so I, you know, I have to remember that even if from time to time, that pull of the ego is saying, no, you should like try to get recognized and try to, you know, try to get this or that. So that, I mean, that's something that everybody struggles with, I think, you know, finding, figuring out like what, what that balance looks like. Well, I, I love the framing though, of just, I'm creating a business that's sustainable for me. Yeah. First and foremost. For sure. For sure. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means different things to different people. And so you know, you've been on the path for a, a wonderfully successful business that you know, fit, fits your lifestyle and fits your goals and, and as stated, you know, is, is sustainable for you. But how do you define success for yourself at this point? Success for myself is feeling like my life is integrated and then I'm not being pulled in a million different directions that I have space to do things like go to Mexico for a month and swim with whale sharks in Baja, California, <laughs> that I can explore hobbies and whims that I might have. You know, it's like, I don't know if you've ever, if you're familiar with the concept of morning pages from the book, The Artist Way. No. The, the concept, I'll just make it quick, is that you write a little something every day. Like you, you get up and you spend a little time journaling and the book offers some prompts about things that you can write about. And one of the prompts is if you had five other lives, what would you be? And I love this question because it changes a lot in my life. But, you know, currently, if you asked me, like, I would want to be a singer-songwriter or I would want to teach kids to swim <laughs> in my free time, <laughs> spend time with kids teaching them to swim. So it's like, I want to figure out how to incorporate those things in my life in some way. And so like, I want to take piano lessons this year. So that's something I'm going to do. And I have the time and space to pick something like that up because I haven't burned myself out in these other areas of my life. And that's, that's really important to me. So that's, that's what success looks like. And that's all built around because you've got 30 clients who, who pay you what you're worth for your, for your services. And so there's enough, enough revenue and 30 very good clients to make all the rest of it work. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly I'm mindful of, you know, profits, right? Like I have a lean business. I have an 85% profit margin, you know, but I've worked at that. It's, it's very intentional. It wasn't like it just happened, you know, overnight that, that this was suddenly created. And part of the six year journey of getting it from start to here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.